I'm Jeremy Loeb with BPR News, joined now by Jeff Tabiri, WUNC Capital reporter. Hey, Jeff. Hey there. Glad to be here. And also Chris Cooper, Western Carolina University political science professor. Hey, Chris. Hey, good to see you. So I want to talk to you guys first and foremost about this GOP tax bill. And the reason for doing that is the Washington Post story that came out today that kind of held up North Carolina as this example, looking at, you know, if you want to see how cutting taxes across the board can affect you down the road, look to North Carolina. And so I sent this to you guys. I know you guys probably had seen it already, but Chris, I'll start with you. Sure. Like, what was your impression of the article? So one thing I liked about it is that it shows how a lot of policy ideas come from the state level. And I think we've seen that, whether it's a, a direct reflection of North Carolina, I don't know, but certainly we see national policies get tried out in the states. And I think this is a good example. We've got a national Republican Party that's been pushing tax cuts in a very specific way for a long time. And so looking to a state like North Carolina, I like, and I think is smart. At the same time, the article ends up concluding, well, look, if you look at it from this perspective, the state's doing a little bit better than average. But if you look at it from a different perspective, some of the people that were struggling are still struggling. So I was left struggling a little bit with yeah. kind of what the true takeaway is. And, and, and I would add some of the most important parts of the federal bill include things like, at least in the Senate version, taking away the individual mandate. And obviously, there's no corollary for that in North Carolina. Taxing tuition for graduate students, there's no corollary to that in North Carolina. So some of this plays. But I think the federal bill is a lot more complex and it's got a lot more going on. You know, one interesting thread is obviously Tillis and Tillis's role at the General Assembly in Raleigh and now, uh, you know, as a fairly prominent member of the U.S. Senate. And some of this is procedural, right? Because uh, the way things moved through when he was overseeing as, as Speaker of the House and the way this moved, I mean, strictly from a emerged quickly, big, thick bill, whole lot going in. I mean, this was a familiar scenario to those of us who have spent late nights at the General Assembly. So yeah. uh, that was one thing that, that did stick out to me. Well, staying on Tillis, you know, I read an editorial I talking about the lesson from HB2 and how rush legislation gets through and what's the legacy of, of that is we had kind of a statewide disaster on the, the national level. I guess they were kind of paralleling that with how the Republicans in the Senate kind of pushed this bill through. There was a lot of hay made about how Democrats, probably plenty of Republicans, didn't see the text of this bill till three hours before they voted. And that was obviously on a Friday night. And there was handwritten text on the bill. The handwritten text, a lot of people have been making a lot of that. That we do see, right? So that actually has been around in Washington a long time. People have also made a lot out of sort of the lobbyist influence. I think we see that. People look for lobbyist influence on money. I think where you really want to look at it is on information and things like helping write bills. So that I think we see a lot in Washington. The last minute push, though, that you identified, I do think that is straight out of the North Carolina playbook and is, is exactly the kind of thing we see here. If you've got the votes and you know you have the votes, then what is your incentive to show it to the other side? And evidently in North Carolina, the answer has been there is none. And now in Washington, the answer is there is none. I think crappy procedure is a bipartisan phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's just Republicans that do that. And I, I think 
I'm going to oversimplify this, and you, Professor, should jump back in and tell me more about it. But I, I think that some of this is the fact that the clock is ticking, right? I mean, you've got Republicans in control of both chambers and a Republican in the White House and a friendly Supreme Court. And what have they accomplished this year? Well, they've added Justice Gorsuch to get that tilt on the court. But other than that, numerous failed efforts to undo the Affordable Care Act. From my perspective, they don't have a big, clear legislative victory. And I realize it's two months away, a couple of months away, but we're getting into primary season. We're getting into 2018. I think that there is pressure from various places to have something to show for from this year in this, uh, you know, this position of power as we head toward 2018, which is historically not going to be, if we look at history, not going to be a good year for the Republicans. Yeah. Let's take a look at what Republicans in North Carolina did with the taxes so they started dropping the taxes, dropping down mm-hmm. the corporate tax rate, similar to what they're doing on the federal level, uh, expanding the sales tax, eliminating the estate tax. Tripled the standard deduction. I think that's mm-hmm. also an important note. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amount of money that you don't pay taxes on, I believe when, going back just a decade, it was like 6000 or 6500 bucks for, I think, a couple's filing jointly. And it's now in the neighborhood of eighteen to 20000 It's still increasing, mm-hmm. depending on which year we're looking at. So there are some parallels that we can look at. But as you mentioned, Chris, it was Mm -hmm. kind of hard to tell what the takeaway from this story was because North Carolina's recovery has proceeded at about the same pace as the Mm -hmm. rest of the country. But on the other hand, Forbes ranked us as number one Mm -hmm. for business climate. This is going to be seen through partisan lenses. So, for example, I read it and I thought, hey, this is mostly a fairly positive story for the Republicans. And then I make the mistake that I sometimes make of turning on Twitter, and I see that every Republican in the state of North Carolina is saying what a horribly biased story this was, and that it didn't properly reflect what massive economic growth we've seen. So I think this is one of those stories that you know, each party's going to see something in. The Republicans are going to use it to say, hey, look, I told you the Washington Post was filled with a bunch of liberals, and the Democrats are mostly ignoring it, it seems to me. Forbes just had this ranking where North Carolina gets slotted top in the in the country, best state for business, right? And uh, if that's in a year when HB2 was on the books early on, and then we had this compromise and it effectively went away. To me, one of the important things to note is that North Carolina has been top five in Forbes rankings going back in each of the last 12 years. That's under Republican rule, under Democratic rule, before, during, and now after a recession. I've had people from both sides kind of roll their eyes at me when I've said this or I've asked the question, which is, how much do the policies we've seen really matter? I mean, are, are, are they most of the pie? Are they influential in that they're driving this thing? There are a number of factors in play here. Uh, and North Carolina is a good state to do business. Reasonable people will agree on that. And um, the recent tax cuts, the recent tax modifications are a piece of that. But is that why North Carolina is tops right now, according to Forbes? I, I think that's t- that's tough to say. Right. And do we pay attention to a ranking? You know, is it is it that important? Do we take it with a grain of salt? Is Forbes an authority on this? I mean, I think for matters of finance, they have some source credibility, I would say. But look, the, the point is a good one. Shifting from fourth to first and then trying to say what exactly is the reason for that. I mean, that's it's a little bit of a fool's errand. And each party can, you know, certainly a, a Democratic governor could say, hey, look, we got a Democratic governor presiding over the state, and we've seen a small increase. Republicans can say we have a supermajority, and we've seen a small increase. I think this story gave enough for each side to pick on, but didn't 
it didn't help me understand better what the long-term implications of this particular bill are. Now, state Republicans have made strides in raising teacher pay, but one of the factors that the article really focused on was the impact on schools. You know, when you're cutting taxes, you're you're cutting away resources for state services. So now that it's very likely that we're going to get a tax bill through Congress, I guess you might say it's likely now. I want to hear from the professor on that. What do you think? I think it's likely, but this is far from a certainty. I mean, the differences between I mean, the individual mandate being huge, right? I mean, the Senate version says we're getting rid of the individual mandate. The House version doesn't. That by its, I mean, that's certainly Obama's signature piece of legislation. Our entire healthcare system falls apart without an individual mandate. So I'm not sure. I mean, you've got Trump saying, maybe I'll go to 22%. And then Rubio saying, where was this a few days ago? You got Mark Meadows saying, I'm not going to take anything above this 20%. But you certainly saw in the Senate that the appetite was there to get it done clearly, because you got people like John McCain saying, I want regular order. Well, the Democrats argued that that was anything but regular (laughs) order. Right, right. Are Democrats right that that was anything but regular order, or is that just— Regular order is now chaos. Yeah. Yeah, and we certainly have seen that in North Carolina. But look, this was not a normal way—parts of this were normal. Again, it's a great headline to say, hey, you got notes scribbled on a piece of paper. That is how legislation's made in in Washington, so that's not necessarily crazy. It does worry me this is becoming more and more normal, though, to have late-night bills pushed in— we got 452 pages, I think, yeah. that they got sprung on yeah. folks after midnight. I haven't made my way through all 452 yet, and I doubt most members of Congress have. So it's getting more and more regular, and that's not a compliment. Now let's go back to if the bill does pass okay. and we do cut taxes nationally. A lot of states, I would think, and do you think this will fill in the gaps with state taxes, whereas now North Carolina has cut taxes Are we going to be left out in the cold as far as providing essential services because our taxes are low and the federal taxes are low? Nothing is passed right now. And so even if something gets passed, I think the devil really is in the details. And I don't think – I'll say politically – there's not going to be much will on the part of many state legislatures to raise taxes to fill this gap. I think another complicating factor is when these provisions set in. I think most folks would say, look, this is going to mean one thing in year one and another thing in year two and another thing completely in year five. And so the consequences politically and I would imagine economically are going to vary by the year. Jeff Tabiri, Chris Cooper, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. A lot of fun. Always a treat.